and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 223. And you go to the conferences and you hear, you know, do zero trust. Zero trust it might as well be a cult for somebody that's living below that security poverty line. The, the kind of staff training and influence you would need to have over your operational environment and executive stakeholders to do something, even part of zero trust, is incredibly out of reach. It was just simply impractical and not helpful. In fact, even Marie Antoinette let them eat cake kind of flippant to, to give the advice to do these best practices when there's really no practices. The phrase, let them eat cake, may never have been uttered by the French queen Marie Antoinette, but the phrase has stuck to her for centuries anyway. That's less because of its historical accuracy than for an attitude that it epitomized. The detachment and callousness of the French monarchy and landed aristocracy in the face of widespread abject poverty and hunger among the citizenry of France. But a very similar attitude is at work these days in the information security space. Rather than standing on a balcony and calling for cake, today's cybersecurity elites mount stages at events like Black Hat and RSA and serve up rich desserts like zero-trust networking, software-defined networking, multi-factor authentication to an audience of other elites. Outside in the trenches, technologically impoverished organizations in the for-profit, non-profit, and public sectors are being ravaged by ransomware, business email compromise scams, and denial-of-service attacks. Just as the aristocracy failed to apprehend the depths of hunger and poverty in society at large, wealthy information security firms and their customers, as well as industry ISACs and even federal agencies, have failed to appreciate how unattainable concepts like zero-trust networking are for a company with a constrained IT budget and without a dedicated security staff. These gaps between the small number of wealthy and sophisticated firms and pretty much everyone else are getting wider. Sadly, much of what passes for official guidance these days is targeted not to the 99% of firms without an IT security staffer, but to the 1% of firms that can afford the best talent and the latest technology and services. One agency that's trying to change that is CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. But bridging the wealth gap in information security is a big project with a lot of moving parts. In this episode of the podcast, I had the privilege of sitting down with two people who are in the trenches of this effort. Josh Corman and Lisa Young are both members of the COVID Task Force at CISA. In this podcast, we talk about the monumental challenge of not just identifying and advocating best practices, but of actually operationalizing them broadly across the economy. I started off by asking Josh and Lisa to talk about one of CISA's latest initiatives, Get Your Stuff Off Search, which is a program to educate rank-and-file IT administrators about the existence of Internet of Things search engines like Shodan and Thingly. Attackers have long been aware of them and use them to target organizations, but many IT administrators are unfamiliar with their existence. Josh Corman, I'm a CARES Act hire for CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They hired me to be the chief strategist for the CISA COVID Task Force. And I'm Lisa Young. I work also as a CARES Act hire on Josh's team at DHS CISA. And Josh, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. And Lisa, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. This is your first time on the podcast, and welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you both here on the podcast, and thanks for joining us. We're talking today uh, amid a bunch of news announcements around 
kind of, I guess what you could call connected device security. CISA has come out recently with a new program called SOS, Get Your Stuff Off Search. I guess I'd ask, um, Josh, maybe do you want to just walk us through that initiative and kind of give us a little bit of uh, uh, explanation for, for what this program is all about and where it, where it comes from? In, in my heart and in, in mind, it's kind of um, several chapters into the book of a new book we're kind of writing, uh, or at least a new framing for how we can identify and buy down risk in the owners and operators of critical infrastructure. Um, this is the nation's risk management advisor on the 16 critical infrastructure sectors, but we've really enhanced that at the NRMC with the National Risk Management Center with a concept called NCFs or National Critical Functions. And these are the 55, you know, absolutely necessary services that affect public safety, um, economic security. Um, so these are the things that have to run. And it, at least in our country, we a lot of that public good and public safety is, is delegated to private owners and operators uh, that are varying levels of security maturity. And in the course of our COVID task force, we both in the hospitals that we were trying to ensure were up and running and uh, could provide timely patient care during a pandemic uh, with very heavy strains and stresses and on the vaccine supply chains in our support of Operation Warp Speed, where we were looking at the very complex and fragile supply chains for uh, the development and distribution of vaccines diagnostics and therapeutics, it wasn't the big pharma companies that needed the most help. It was these tiny obscure manufacturers that uh, had no security team, maybe three IT people, zero security people. And if you sneeze on them, they're going to fall down. And then there's no Pfizer or Moderna doses for anybody because they're too, they're too vital to the supply chain. So as we came to grips with this, Lisa, myself, several of the CARES Act hires across many um, of the uh, the disciplines necessary to bring, be brought to bear, we noticed that many of these organizations are what we call uh, target-rich cyber-poor, in that they're, you know, to, to quote Wendy Nather, friend of both of ours, uh, they're living below the security poverty line. So typically, government advice or private sector advice from vendors is, oh, you should eat well and exercise, or you should just do best practices, or merely do zero <laughs> trust, or merely implement a multi-factor Cyber food pyramid, yes, right. <laughs> Uh, and w that was just not practical. Um, you can't do a multi-year, multi-million dollar authentication project when you don't have a single cybersecurity person on staff. And as you know, from my hospital work on the task force for Congress in 2016, 2017, it was our estimate that 85% of the nation's hospitals don't have a single qualified security person on staff. It was just simply impractical and not helpful. In fact, even Marie Antoinette let them eat cake kind of flippant. To, to give the advice to do these best practices when there's really no practices. And instead of shaming them, we realized if we wanted to identify and buy down risk to the vaccine supply chains or to hospitals, we need to meet people where they are and be much more pragmatic about this. On a crawl, walk, run, they're not even at the starting line. And we've been publishing a, a series of things, at least to the, the cohort in hospitals and some of the... Uh, vaccine supply chains of things like bad practices. So sysa.gov slash bad practices, put a stake in the ground. And while this is not your regulator and not law enforcement, we put some bold language out there and there's two there as of the recording of this podcast, but we're thinking of adding a few more imminently. But one, for example, says that the use of unsupported and end of life software in service of national critical functions is dangerous and materially elevates risks to national security, national economic security, and national health and public safety. And that this dangerous practice is especially egregious 
in internet facing technologies. Almost the same wording for default hard-coded passwords and maintenance passwords. Because uh, if you look around, Paul, and I know you know this, you know, I think until there's a stake in the ground saying what it is, which it is dangerous. Um, while we're not a regulator, we're hoping that the ecosystem, um, the insurers look at how insurable is someone doing something this dangerous or mm -hmm. the regulators for each of the respective industries says, maybe we should take steps to identify, enumerate and, and drive out of existence these most dangerous practices. Sure. And in a lot of cases, the solution is going to be very hard because there's not a lot of money in adding cybersecurity investment, even if they wanted to. There's just no margins in some of these heavily regulated spaces. So long story short, um, if we're going to identify these uncomfortable truths, we don't want to simply point out the things that are most often leading to harm. And if you zoom out, we knew that these, this infrastructure was prone. We knew that they, these were prey. We just didn't have any appetite from the predators. And that's changed because stuff is on fire across most of these national critical functions. In the last year alone, we have had compromises of the water we drink, the food we put on our table, the power and utilities for our businesses and our homes, the schools our children go to, the oil and gas supply for the Eastern Seaboard, and most terrifyingly, access to timely medical care during a pandemic has driven mm -hmm. up loss of life, both for COVID and excess deaths together from non-COVID conditions. So with so much critical infrastructure on fire, it's time for an approach that's somewhere in between being perfectly prone and doing best practices. So it started with best practices, and instead of just pointing a finger, in the meantime, while we have the hard conversations about what to do about those dangerous bad practices, we introduced SOS formally through the government. I've been talking about similar acronym in the private sector for many, many years, I think maybe even on one of your podcasts. But this is essentially saying, see what your adversaries can see. You may have remote attack surfaces that were unknown to you, but are perfectly plain to anyone using Shodan or Census or Thingly. And why don't you at least identify what's there and the ones that you can shut off or put mitigations in place for start there, then we'll put you into something like cyber hygiene scanning to do routine checks for known vulnerabilities. Then we'll help you with things like here's the top 25 published most exploited vulnerabilities. So you can focus on the most important one, not some random CBSS score. And then maybe we'll do some NIST cybersecurity framework gap analysis, but there's a massive divide for the target rich cyber poor. And the things we're focusing on now are the things that require no budget, no talent, uh, no deep pockets for a deep bench of cybersecurity talent, but can identify and buy down risk while stuff is on fire across all of these. So we developed them specifically for the Cisco Task Force, for the impoverished hospitals, and for the vaccine supply chain entities that were these ball bearings that were small, unguarded, and had asymmetric impact. But in parallel, it became really relevant to the overall critical infrastructure attacks you're seeing writ large. Like you said, you, you, CISA went out and was very proactive and aggressive with the COVID uh, vaccine supply chain. Are there other verticals that you think are uh, require just that degree of critical intervention where you almost can't even rely on them, you know, engaging with you or checking with you? You've got to kind of parachute into their organization and say stop the presses. We need to address these issues right now. So just talking about energy and power and municipal power and utility providers, 
in this country, over 2,000 cities in 49 states deliver power, water, and other services, such as first responders, police, firefighters, and even some health clinics, right? Yeah. So these organizations are largely overseen by local city councils or government officials. They often have constrained budgets, and they're generally not experts in cybersecurity. So to Josh's point about you know this budgetary thing, when you look at critical manufacturing, energy, and and healthcare, they have to evaluate cyber risk against all the other risks they face to deliver their mission, right? Which is serving us as their constituents. So, you know, they, they're experts in that field, but they're not, they don't have the continuing resources to stave off, you know, sort of cyber threats, hackers, malicious software. So this, this notion of cyber poor really resonates. Um, and I think we need to give them some things that they can do sort of to take back their, you know, take back their domain here. I realize we have not even defined cyber poor. Cyber poor, as we're breaking this down, it is you're you're deficient in one or more of the following three things. You either have an information deficit in that you just didn't know that you could be a target or didn't know what to do about it. And obviously the the cure for an information gap is um, education awareness and things like this the unified whole of government stop ransomware.gov that was set up as a consequence of this. Um Number two is is a thorny one um, and being debated on the floor of Congress routinely now, which is there may be insufficient incentives. There aren't enough carrots and sticks to do the right thing, even if you know what the right thing looks like. You mm-hmm. know, a failed in economic terms, a failed market is when private goods trump public goods. And as we've delegated uh, public goods and national security issues to private owners and operators, um, sometimes we're having private goods trump public goods. So um a lot of discussions are talking about what are the limits of purely voluntary practices for critical functions and critical infrastructure owners and operators. So that's that's the insufficient incentives. And the third one is the Wendy Nather living below the security poverty line, insufficient resources. Like maybe you know what to do. Maybe you have incentives to do what you got to do, but you just don't have the talent pool or the, the funds to do it, or you're starting ice cold. And the remedy for each of those are different. Um, and as such, we need to be more granular than just saying the best practices. So I think some of these things like get your stuff off search or identifying bad practices are meant to be practical and catalyze first things first. Let's start here. As soon as you're done that, here's the next step, the next step, the next step. And these become the on-ramps and on-roads to go from prone towards best practices. We've seen issues in in, in recent months, you know, for example, you know, the Acelian um, a file transfer uh, appliance. I think there was a big sonic wall. So, I mean, you were talking about decommissioning legacy hardware mm. and software. Um, but, you know, obviously, Josh, we were both analysts. We know that, like, that can be really difficult to do once companies are using a technology. There's a tremendous amount of um, inertia uh, and getting them to not use it or switch to something else can be really hard. Yeah. Um, what 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 leverage does CISA have on on that issue? Because that would seem to me to be a really big one, but also kind of a thorny one for companies to come in and say, well, you should really just stop using this technology or stop using this, you know, um, uh, vendor or, or uh, software that you've come to rely on. Yeah, one of my, uh, one, as we were pushing this concept of bad practices, there was significant debate. Obviously, we have competing equities, right? You know, when you talk to an impoverished hospital that's running, I think one of the triggers for this was, during the exchange attacks, um, the very widespread Microsoft exchange attacks. Mm. As you know, if you compromise exchange, you've got keys to the kingdom for Active Directory and everything else behind it. 
and it was pretty pervasive exposure and pretty actively exploited as indicated by all the, the guidance CISA gave for its um, federal uh, domain and for the private sector. When Bob Rudis, the chief data scientist over Apple 7 did a scan of the internet, he found that the number one market share for exchange on the internet was the unsupported version. It was, and it blew my mind because here we are on these phone calls asking people to apply the most recent patches. Um, and people were asking Microsoft, well, you're going to patch my version. And like, this wasn't an edge case. This was the dominant posture. And when digging into this with hospitals or other critical infrastructure providers, they said, we just don't have the money. It's going to cost us a ton of money to get to Office 365 or upgrade. We just can't do it. So the part of the debate here was um, I, I, I and others really wanted us to put a stake in the ground and said, this is dangerous. And they said, yeah, but isn't it common? I said, yes, it's common <laughs> and dangerous. So what we had the permission and swim lane to do is as the nation's risk management advisor in charge of cybersecurity and infrastructure security for the 55 national critical functions, our position is that this is dangerous and imperils national security, national economic security, national public health and safety. And that, yes, it was so important. I've said it twice on this short podcast, but that does not negate other truths. It's just the opposite of a profound truth is not a lie, but another profound truth. And we have to have hard conversations because when there's a case where it is both dangerous and common or difficult to transcend, then you get into cash for clunkers type discussions. Or then you talk to the insurers mm -hmm. who say, wow, maybe it should be harder to insure or uninsurable to have such egregious exposure. Like what, what, what do all the best practices in the world matter if the front door is wide open um, and prone? So we, we, the hope was not to replace other truths, but to state confidently and clearly a profound truth of the use of these practices are dangerous and it's not just dangerous to you and your stakeholders, but to the national security. We are then weaponizing this by convening multi-stakeholder discussions about how specifically to identify and drive out this behavior uh, in a thoughtful and planful way. And it may require, you know, multivariable calculus. It might be that if it's too expensive, we need a short-term, you know, IT reinvestment act for certain places. It might be that go ahead and do whatever you want, but you're not going to be able to get insured anymore for that, or it's going to cost you more, or it might mm -hmm. be very bold, you know, regulators like the Food and Drug Administration. And I know you're familiar with Dr. Suzanne Schwartz and a big fan. She's already done some bold things, but there was maybe there wasn't a specific prohibition of starting a brand new medical device approval with a known end of life piece of software. Maybe now we're nudging as a nation's risk management advisor, the, the consequence to the national critical functions as a new input for that uh, either government or private sector self-regulatory organization to tackle these hard truths. So the stating of a bad practice is not the story. It's the beginning of a conversation and it's going to be a series of hard conversations, but it's, you know, we can't turn a blind eye to these anymore because when the dominant pack practice is a dangerous practice, we're doing it wrong. We want to make the safe thing, the easy thing and the default thing. So, uh, Josh, I mean, you you talked about the vaccine supply chain and how some of these companies that supply components of, let's say, the COVID nineteen vaccine are very small and very specialized, and, and we can understand how they, you know, might not have resources or staffing around infosec because it just isn't central to what they do as an organization and because they're budget constrained and everything else, um, and feel like nobody probably knows who they are anyway. Lisa, I know you've worked a lot in the, you know, with much larger organizations in, you know, critical infrastructure, energy, and so on. 
Um, can't really make the same argument there. They clearly have the resources to to do cybersecurity right if they want to, and yet um, often very slow to um, you know come up to speed or embrace some of these concepts. I know Joe Weiss has been complaining for years, uh, literally, about um, their reluctance to. Um, you know, uh, expand or broaden things like the NERC SIP to um, to encompass more likely types of attack scenarios and threat scenarios, risk scenarios. Um, so what what are your thoughts on what has been the obstacle in those industries where you can't say, oh, well, they just don't have the resources or staffing to do this, um, and yet the practices have really not um, kept pace? Well, so hang on a second. I'll just challenge you for one second. A lot of people think and hear in the news that energy is a big, uh, a big, you know, heavily funded, and investor-owned utilities generally are, but they're a small subset of what actually gets delivered to our houses, right? So when you think about municipals or rural co-ops, I mean, when I say three guys in a generator in the middle of a of a state, literally that's what it is. And then you think about the municipals who don't just have to deliver power, water, and other things, but they have to deliver all of the city services, you know, your garbage, your firefighters and everything else. So these are resource constrained and they're not, it's not like when they have a cyber incident, they can just go to the market and raise their rates. You know, they're heavily regulated. And what happens is some of these regulations get in the way of them actually being better at security because they're focusing their resources on, you know, complying with something rather than securing something. And I think that there's a big difference. So to Josh's point about having these hard conversations, Mm -hmm. compliance is important, but you can't regulate an entity into security, you know, and I think that's really the difference. And in in some cases, we're going to have to blow up the frame because the the economics of, you know, people keep asking me like, what's changed? Like why, if we were always prone and we're always prey, why are there so many pieces of critical infrastructure on fire? Um, And I think uh, it was predator appetite and interest. I think uh, primarily, I'm sure there's a, n- a number of factors. It's not like they were all of a sudden prone in 2021 or 2020. It was uh, most adversaries would try to monetize the monetizable in the Fortune 100. Uh, you go for the biggest bank because it has the most mobby, money or the one with the most records for healthcare, the biggest hospitals. And those tended to correlate with the, st- the most heavily invested cybersecurity program or, or whatnot. But when a ransom can invert the math and anyone who has anything of value of any size, you can turn their value into your value as an adversary. So that that alignment of anything valuable to my victim is therefore going to turn into value for me as an attacker has changed everything. And now the assumption that, well, we won't be targeted or the attack density wasn't there or, you know, we'll do this as long as we can until we can't anymore. You know, there's I had a was the physics teacher in high school he said no one changes until the pain of maintaining our inertia exceeds the pain of change well we are past that inflection point where we were able to tolerate maybe um things we shouldn't have for quite some time but now that the attack density is here your your old constraints on you know regulated margins on what investment in cybersecurity you were able to get away with how indefensible your it was um the, the old strategies will not work anymore. And as such, we need to blow up not just one or two things a la carte, but blow up the strategies and have these hard conversations so that if it re- requires, you know, a relaxation of a previous uh, regulatory constraint in order to make room to add something new, 
all things should be on the table. And in fact, they may need to be because current course and speed is leading to lots of things on fire. Um, so we were talking in the, in the top of the episode just about the um, recent disclosure around BlackBerry and QNX real-time operating system vulnerabilities and that, that the um, bad alloc vulnerability affected that. That raises the issue of software bill of materials because one of the issues that's come up with, with BlackBerry is the company saying, we don't really, really don't actually understand entirely everybody who's using this, you know, we, we know who our customers are, but we don't know who their customers are. And so we're not even sure who to notify. This is a issue that is definitely not limited to that, that software, you know, for, for organizations that want to have um, situational awareness, um, there's a lot of noise in the cyberspace. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of news happening every day. In theory, they should just hear about the stuff that affects them and their software and, and SBOM software bill of materials kind of speaks to that. But I guess, how do we do it? How do we implement it? And what role does the government, you know, CISA or DHS or, or even some other agency play in kind of setting that up? I think there's a couple ways, and we're not going to bear the fruit of this immediately. But yeah, as I saw some of these stories, without getting into specifics of any one of them, um, we do have a complex ecosystem and a software supply chain, and we don't always know which end user devices in the operational environment have which exposures. Um, so the original question we tried to answer actually came out of that Sam Sam attack at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital, that accidental mm -hmm. incidental ransomware was a single mm -hmm. Java deserialization flaw and a single JBoss library and a single medical tech took out a hospital for a week. Um, that was really the, the first accidental damaging hospital ransom that then led to hospitals being the number one target. Uh, that was part of the argument that got SBOM, you know, that was one of our recommendations in the task force report that House Energy and Commerce said to FDA, please go do this. FDA said, okay, we're going to require software bill materials for all medical devices. And then NTIA did, you know, uh, ultimately a three-year and going uh, multi-stakeholder process to try to define a, a broad adoption of, of SBOM in different formats. Um, so heading towards the answer to your question, when the cybersecurity executive order came out requiring that anything sold to the federal government, you know, do, does a number of things, including produce a machine readable SBOM, um, this is going to, whether those small target rich cyber poor organizations or not have a procurement team and leverage, you know, purchasing leverage to demand SBOMs and demand clean SBOMs or not, the, the collective purchasing power of the federal government will start changing the ecosystem for anything that if you want to make money, you got to have to provide these things. So at a minimum, uh, that ingredients list during an attack might provide actionable situational awareness to answer, am I affected and where am I affected for these owners and operators uh, going forward? I think it's going to first manifest for hospitals because uh, FDA has a head start over the executive order. What people haven't really figured out about one of the best parts of SBOM is that by virtue of knowing what ingredients are going into your software, the technical debt and security debt that you've been ignoring or unaware of this whole time, the act of rendering it visible is going to drive out really old and vulnerable libraries. It's going to drive out poorly maintained projects and people have fewer and better open source libraries and they'll update them more frequently. So even if you're a, a living below the security poverty line, owner and operator of critical infrastructure, your digital supply chain is going to be less vulnerable in a transparent SBOM regime than it will be currently in an opaque 
regime. So I think there's really the am I affected, where am I affected enablement of that transparency, but also probably more importantly, um, you'll have to fight less hard to defend your more defensible kingdom in the future. But that's going to take years to manifest. Um, good point. I mean, are there? it's also a moving target because, of course, even as we're speaking, there are uh, new applications, um, you know, utilizing uh, open source components from, you know, single developer projects that themselves are vulnerable um, and that then are going to kind of work their way out and into thousands or tens of thousands of, of downstream applications. Um, how do you, um, um, you know, get your arms around that problem? And, and, and is that yeah. something that's even controllable? Well, I, I think uh, everyone's grappling with what is an SBOM? How can I make one? And they're looking, they're all afraid of their current technical debt. But I think those of us that have been chewing on this for a while realize that once we're over the five stages of grief here, um, you're going to end up with fewer total open source projects from better maintained um, open source project committers. Uh, you're going to use the code you need. I mean, how many times have you heard at a DEF CON or another conference that someone used this huge open source library like OpenSSL for a random number generator? So it had all the attack surface and complexity and bloat of a big project, but one little function. We do that because we didn't realize the cost of that complexity. And I think by virtue of how many times we have to answer, you know, known vulnerabilities, yes or no, we're not vulnerable. We're going to end up using fewer and better components. We're going to use fresher ingredients from those. I mean, fewer and better open source suppliers, uh, less vulnerable versions of those open, uh, fewer and better open source suppliers. And we're going to track which ones go where. Like th this is a, you know, we, there have been critics of SBOM and without getting into all that, um, you know, that saying it's not yet proven. And what they're forgetting is this has been vital to the success and maturity and trustworthiness of automotive manufacturing, aviation manufacturing, chemical supply companies, food supplies for since the forties. So we're not inventing things from whole cloth with bill of materials. What we're trying to do is apply them um, faster uh, to this new digital uh, supply chain, much like the benefits of others. So we're not starting from scratch. We know how and where those supply chains got better and we hope to apply those proven practices here. And again, that's the medium and long term. I think the purpose of SOS and the purpose of bad practices was for someone who's doing nothing or doesn't have the staff to do much, or maybe they will have the staff post pandemic, but they're very strained during the pandemic. We want to start uh, on the most egregious and avoidable points of exposure and then climb the ladder towards um, something more tractable and sustainable across those 55 national critical functions. Could you just give a kind of a quick overview on if people are curious about SOS, like what they'll find on the CISA site and what resources are available to them? Sure. Uh, Any uh, of you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, the, the whole Cisco Task Force team helped put this together, but uh, it's essentially a one-page infographic, kind of like the pineapple pizza one <laughs> from misinformation. Uh, mm -hmm. It's got a bunch of emojis on it, but it, it, it just kind of says, see what your adversaries can see. Um, there are tools like Shodan, Census, Thingly that can reveal, instead of cat pictures, um, you know, industrial control systems or remote connectivity ports increasingly exposing SCADA and ICS and OT environments or smart connected physical devices that could have a kinetic impact if exploited. Um, 
So we're not trying to give a tutorial per se on those things, but we really have four functions that we outline in this one page infographic, you know, first assess your posture, second, evaluate and reduce your exposure. Maybe you didn't know you had all those. Maybe you don't need all of them for the ones you do need. How do you harden and mitigate that and then make it routine, right? Um, during the pandemic, for example, even hospitals that had fairly decent remote exposure in a very big hurry had to stand up, you know, new VPNs, new telemedicine technologies. Did it not go through their standard change management? They did not get hardened. In some cases, they weren't licensed, so they couldn't be patched. So because new stuff and shadow IT can creep up, do this routinely. And at the, the website, we have this one page infographic um, to get your stuff off search. But then there's specific implementation guidance and four supplemental documents. Um, one's the general how-to, followed up by a specific step-by-step um, -step for some of the major tools like Shodan and Census.io. And I'll emphasize the shadow IT portion too, because or the shadow IIoT or IoT is because often the IT folks are not aware that these devices have been put onto the network or onto the infrastructure, right? So raising awareness there that this is, um, you know, helps them understand the scope because if they're not looking for it, they're not seeing it, right? But if this gives them an opportunity to see what's there, it helps, you know, with the with the discussions, right? Do you need it? Is it something that should be there? You know, right. those kinds of discussions. Yep. Um, I think it, one of the original drafts had, you know, a magnifying glass showing, oh, you have 10 remote ports and services open. And then do you, you know, question mark up, down, left, right. You, you know, maybe I only need six. Um, okay. Well, how do I harden the remaining six or what might break if I shut off number five or so there, there's a, we're not being flippant that, you know, just because you have exposure means it's bad. Um, it, but for example, um, before we published this document, um, we found that cyber hygiene, we have two products under cyber hygiene. These are taxpayer funded vulnerability scans of your edge. Um, there's a vulnerability scanning service and a web application scanning service, both called cyber hygiene. And if you sign up for it for free, if you're in critical infrastructure, we just scan every day and send you an automated note saying, here's the vulnerabilities we saw. And people tend to, um, have much better hygiene by virtue of using this than when they first start and they maintain it. Well, you have to sign up for that. And I said, out of the 5,600 hospitals in the US, we only have like a couple hundred on this service. So how do we get better visibility during the pandemic? So what we did is we started looking at previously scanned um, domains via some of these tools. And we've woven in our own licenses to, to look at and scan and parse known critical infrastructure and then we said, how about instead of us doing this, we can equip others to do it for themselves routinely. And um, so this has just been a progression out of necessity that if you're trying to do things, you know, the best practice way, you may have limited impact or visibility. And if you cast a wider net, well, the very first thing that bubbled to the top in our first pilot of doing this, and if you know Jack Cable, it was actually some of his work that helped us do this uh, passive scanning for um, entities that we did not yet have a formal relationship with. Um, one of the top offenders, the most vulnerable domains and vulnerable systems on in the country in hospitals was a f at a very well-funded hospital, one of the top five funded hospitals in the country. And then I called my personal relationship there and pointed it out. And he goes, wow, every time we think we've taken care of that one, <laughs> that one hospital, they keep screwing it up again. So 
even a really mature, well-funded program didn't realize that they can have recidivism or that people, you know, they're constantly fighting with very mm -hmm. vulnerable exposures that could get in and move laterally. So everybody needs to do this from the, the target rich side report all the way up through the fortune five. It's interesting to me. And Lisa, this might be a question for you. And again, I, you know, I, I've worked, I work, I do some volunteer work just with, with it here in my hometown. And, and so I've had some exposure to like local, you know, um, utilities and, and critical infrastructure providers, but often when you mention things like Shodan or so on, you kind of get these quizzical looks. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I guess, how is it, how is it? Cause I, I actually, to toot my horn, I think I wrote one of the first stories on Shodan and John Matherly back at ThreatPost in, and it's probably been 10 or 11 years ago, you know, <laughs> ran into him at, you know, a cybersecurity conference, talked in the hallway, wrote a story on it. Um, and, you know, um, and yet uh, now 10 years later, within these disciplines that clearly cybersecurity is a, is a priority for them, they're certainly aware of the risk, but there isn't the awareness. And, and I wonder whose failure that is, that lack of kind of cross-domain knowledge exposure, um, even when it's really val valuable. W where have we fallen down? So I deal with this a lot. You know, one of those things that helps is storytelling, right? And talking about Shodan, people look at you like, you know, they're either their eyes glaze over or, you know, what the heck is that? And, and we've done a terrible job of translating from sort of cyber to business or, you know, cyber to mission, like, you know, and, and I think all of us who are in this space could do a better job of explaining what we mean. So things that people can understand and the storytelling, it's, it's on us to help them. Yeah, that's a really great point. A lot of the ways we talk to industry, the public-private partnerships, are really heavily biased towards the haves, not the have-nots. And uh, if you have a security team and you pay a fee to join an ISAC, and you have, even if it's free, you, ha you have the time to participate in meetings on a regular basis about cybersecurity, you're already the, the kids who stay after school for extra credit. Um, so when you're at a conference, we always talk about the zero day attack or this sophisticated this or sophisticated that. And, you know, I, a quote I use a lot lately, it's going to sound distant, but you know, that William Gibson quote that the future is here already, it's just not evenly distributed, you know, best practices aren't I mean, if they ever were, but they're, they're certainly not evenly distributed. And I think what happens is the Digirati, the vendor community, the thought leader, rockstar types, they move on to the next hot topic, but they've never operationalized the the important topics. And I I noticed these things, many of you have noticed these things, talked about these things, Wendy's got that great quote. Uh, but then you go to the conferences and you hear, you know, do zero trust. Zero trust might as well be a cult at some point it, for, for somebody that's living below that security poverty line. The, the kind of staff training and influence you would need to have over your operational environment and executive stakeholders to do something, even part of Zero Trust, is incredibly out of reach. So I almost feel like the kind of, now that I'm up close on a daily basis looking at life and death consequences or impact to national security, the overwhelming majority of the owners and operators are prone. And if we want to change that, we need proportional advice uh, and we need investment. And it might not be that the conferences will split between the haves and the have nots, but some amount of our talent pool needs to make sure that we're having fit for purpose advice for people at any part of their journey and maturity level. The goal isn't to have instant perfection, but the goal is to get started and, and start quickly and then have a way to progress accordingly.
Josh, you mentioned uh, on a couple occasions kind of the role for the private sector, in particular industries like insurance, in helping to also um, lever some of this and provide incentives for companies to do the right things. So I guess I'd ask you, how do you see the private sector and insurance industry playing a role in this? And is there anything really that you know, CISA or DHS or the federal government can do to shape that influence? Or do you just kind of have to leave it up to the actuaries and the, and the companies themselves to figure that out? Well, uh, as you know, the, the desire for actuarial certainty for this kind of thing um, is a red herring, and that's not what they're trying to look for, as you know. But um, would they like it? Sure. Do they think they're going to get it? No. Um, I think these are multi-stakeholder conversations that have to happen concurrently. And luckily, as the nation's risk management advisor, the National Risk Management Center is having some of those conversations with multiple stakeholders, we are taking this bad practice list and turning it into a bad practice program where we are convening stakeholders at the same time to see which things can can move and be reimagined or, you know, enhanced so that there's a coordinated response. Um, you might have seen during Director Easterly's keynote at Black Hat, the reveal of the JCDC and a bunch of its day one uh, private sector uh, sign up participants from some of the big players to help us partner on doing sprints to identify and buy down risk that are cross sector or cross agency or public private, not partnerships. I think she called it that a hackneyed public private cliche, but rather public private collaboration. Like this is a verb, right? Not a, not a, a, a cliche. And for some of these things, it, it, it's not a matter of one stakeholder doing something in their swim lane or their silo in isolation. It's going to be, here's a coordinated strategy. Here's a play that we could run to take us from current state to desired state. Here's what we can do soon, midterm, long-term. So I think the, I personally feel the insurers will be a vital player here. And the good news, bad news is so many of them have lost money uh, on the spate of ransomware that they, their changes will be made. And there's a window of opportunity and appetite to make changes, especially if, if it's in coordination with other um, members of that public-private collaboration. Um, so I don't think it's going to be easy, but um, I think we have everyone's attention, right? Current course and speed is not working. People know that. They don't know yet what to do about it, but if they try to solve it onesie twosie in isolation, we won't make much progress. If we can talk about the equities and the trade-offs in larger groups, I think we might make a dent. We've got some good ideas. And you we were talking, I mean, you mentioned you th the, the role you think the ransomware epidemic is playing in, in kind of changing thinking about this. And uh, could, you, could you just kind of explain, expand on that and how how ransomware has helped to kind of um, solidify or, or, or bring into focus some of these problems around the need to, you know, not just talk to the usual suspects, uh, namely, you know, large financial services firms or what have you uh, around uh, issues of related to cybersecurity. Well, I think attack density correlated to the, the bigger players historically, but now, as I said a few minutes ago, um, anything valuable to anyone makes you um, monetizable. So that, that bit flip in the adversaries was part. A second key factor there is, um, like with many problems that start small, um, as adversaries were unchecked and unrebuffed, they got more brazen. And when they accidentally crossed lines into critical infrastructure and there weren't sufficient penalties or retaliation, they more 
deliberately got into them. And as the ransoms got bigger and now multi-stage and you saw some of that stuff on last night, last week, tonight segment on Sunday. But I think ransom thrived below our um, thresholds of, of caring. You know, when I say our, I mean a lot, a lot of the cybersecurity digerati and the vendors. It wasn't interesting. It should have been, you know, avoidable with simple hygiene things. But that hubris allowed it to grow and fester and thrive. And and they just pay it, you know, just pay the ransom kind of attitude because it was accidentally or deliberately covered by insurance. Also funded their R and D to come back harder. And you know, we essentially have something that maybe was defeatable in its fledgling stage or its adolescent stage, but now it's formidable. Um, so better late than never to get a consensus and a, a wake up moment, but it's going to be with us for, for quite some time. So change necessitates changes and everything has changed except for our defensive postures. And SIS is trying to take a leadership position to catalyze those new evolutions. SIS has done some amazing work already with COVID supply chain and healthcare and other, you know, important verticals. However, and it is a, you know, 19, 20, 21 trillion dollar economy. I don't know what your budget and staffing are, but I'm pretty sure you don't, you can't scale to su- to support, you know, the hundreds of thousands of private entities and public entities out there that probably need your services. So how how is CISA going to scale this assistance? It's it almost strikes me as something that you need to do at sort of like the schoolhouse rock level. Like, you know, you need to be like getting these messages out in very digestible forms to, you know, basically everybody and and just hope that it it kind of sinks in. Um, but I'd be interested in in the scale problem and how and how you see solving that. This is why risk management is so important. You know, we didn't go after every bio pharma ecosystem player with our ball bearings analysis. We did rigorous supply chain dependency analysis and criticality. Um, Congress has asked us to look at SICKIES, which is systemically important critical infrastructure as a designation, where you've looked at the the vital links in these supply chains. We've looked at how to identify and buy down risk because risk management. Uh, in fact, Director Easterly, um, one of her um, most clear pieces of leadership to the whole of CISA is that, yes, we're the nation's risk management advisor, but we also have to shift into being the nation's risk management reducer. Risk is about focusing on the critical few. And when you actually look, there's a lot of important things in this, in our economy and in our, you know, national security and healthcare. But when you actually look at the critical few, I think there aren't that many things that we could start with, right? We start small, move out, and uh, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of risk management as a team sport. So I think that you know, instead of reinventing the wheel, let's take some guidance from CISA and promulgate it through many different channels, you know, and get it out to people who need to know. Is is agriculture is is agriculture going to be agricultural equipment going to be one of those uh, sicky uh, industries? Well, SICKI is a designation for key players in any of our national critical functions. And of course, the food supply is one of those. Um, so these are, when we look at the 55 national critical functions across the 16 designated critical infrastructure sectors, these are the services that are too big to fail. And not every participant in those national critical functions are equally weighted. So we're looking at the institutions, the suppliers, the entities that we can partner with to best identify and buy down risk on those precious few. And to make sure that we, I echo her uh, 
team sport point. Um, if you're looking for a partial blueprint beyond what CISA telegraphs is what we're doing, um, the Cyber Slayer Commission has, has really been ushering in the formation of CISA, the ascension of CISA in the National Defense Authorization Act in January. They, they changed the sector-specific agencies like HHS into sector risk management agencies and finally gave them a, a statutory obligation to supply risk information to CISA and the National Risk Management Center so that we can federate our, our aggregation of telemetry and our distribution of insights um, with uh, whole of government partnerships. Yeah, I know if you know Jim Langevin or Representative Langevin, he was overjoyed that they set up the first Senate confirmed national cyber director with uh, um, Chris Inglis taking that role for the first time. And in parallel with that, CISA continues to get new authorities, new taskings through the cyber executive order, and even pretty steep budget increases consistently. So the bad news is uh, stuff is on fire across most of these national critical functions. And the barbarians aren't just at the gates, they're throwing Molotov cocktails. The good news is two and a half years ago, CISA was stood up and it's getting its footing. And if we can attract and retain uh, unconventional allies from the hacker community, from the, the risk management community, from the CSO, CISO community to come help us, then we can accelerate this learning curve and ascension better late than never. Um, so there's a lot of investment has happened. A lot more is coming. And the key investment is going to be um, attracting and retaining the talent and the workforce and the partnerships to collaborate and rise to meet the moment. Lisa Young and Josh Corman, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Josh Corman and Lisa Young are strategists on the COVID task force at CISA, the U.S. cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. Mm-hmm.